Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm so well. I'm excited, actually, David. I'm always excited when we do our shows, but I, uh, I just got this really weird bit of news. I think I came across a title that is one of the best titles that's ever been handed to me. Uh, you ready for it? I am ready. Okay, I had just had some exotic blood work done. I've had a few sort of. I I I I, I had I carry malaria from the past, from uh, the Sepik River uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea and other sort of strange things. But anyway, I had some blood work done, and um, some of it wasn't covered by my insurance company, and they sent me a little sort of note about it. And I looked at the thing, and it was. Viper Venom Time. Isn't that a beautiful title? It actually comes from Russell's Viper. Have a look at it, listeners. There are beautiful snakes in the world, many of them. And even if you feel like they're just kind of malignant and dangerous and evil-looking things, they are, of course, very dangerous. This uh, particular Viper... And remember, vipers see in infrared, which I think is also really cool. Uh, this particular, they, they run about four feet in length and about a uh, pretty hefty six to eight inches in girth. And they're serious, serious looking. But their venom is perfectly calibrated to be a test for the coagulation capabilities of human blood. In other words, they're, they're just... Human blood gets measured in terms of how long it takes to clot up against the venom because the venom is just like bad news. So I just thought, wow, viper venom time. That's that was worth it right there for me. That's that's so cool. And it makes me think that the further and further we move into things like nanotechnology and cloning and stem cell research, it warms my heart to know that we're still doing strange alchemical things like mixing human blood with viper venom in order to see the coagulation that just that feels like something john d would be doing with a bunch of beakers and <laughs> strange exactly. devices yeah and and it, it's that natural sort of thing i mean i think this is where terence mckenna would say you know trust the things that have been tested in the laboratory of planet earth rather than in some Swiss laboratory or Palo Alto or something. You know, I think it's cool. I mean, we don't even have any idea the secrets that we've lost now in, in Amazonia or in the Congo or in Borneo, and in, in, we're in the process of losing in New Guinea. Um, if we, who knows, you know? I mean, there are mushrooms uh, mushrooms, not even toadstools, that you can actually read by. They're so luminous, you know. All these strange worms and creatures. I mean, there's God only knows. We there's there's cures for everything hidden in these worlds. But I think you're right. The great alchemists like John D. That's what they were talking about. That's what they were, you know, Paracelsus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, have, have you seen Agrippa. pictures of Have you seen pictures of bioluminescent water? Like a bioluminescent ocean. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been, I've been out. I mean, that's uh, the Bismarck Sea has huge sections of that, and it's it's absolutely amazing because you feel like you're tripping out, you know, 
out in it. And you are tripping in a sense. I mean, I, I think, you know, incredible phosphorescent microorganisms, what more do you want, you know, right? I was at home today and I have not had a drop of alcohol in two weeks because I've decided that I want to be sober for my son's youth. So maybe 18 years from now, maybe I'll drink again. But I'm noticing through sobriety how many things in the sort of mundane day-to-day life are completely bizarre. And this is going to sound so mundane, but I was sitting in my rolling chair at my desk and my floor is uneven. And when I turn to the right, I can feel myself dip back a little bit. And I was catching a little buzz from that. Well, I am a lightweight, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sober lightweight. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, listen, congratulations. I, you know, good luck on that. I I support that move entirely. Um, I think everyone who needs to find that moment or that trend has to find it in their own time in their own way. But uh, Mm -hmm. good for you. Thank you. Well, before we get into the show proper, I want to do my now weekly um, call to action for our listeners. Thanks so much. We got a few nice... uh, iTunes reviews. I appreciate that. If you could please keep that up. If you have a moment throughout your week, if you could just hop on over to the No Country podcast on iTunes and leave us a five-star review, that would be fantastic. It helps people find the show. Once again, we have an absolutely phenomenal retention rate of listeners, right? There's a remarkable consistency. About 300 of you who listen to this as soon as it drops, which is fantastic. I mean, that's great for a podcast that's only on episode 20 and for a podcast that we haven't spent a dime on on promoting. That's pretty remarkable. So we thank you very much for listening. But we would like to have more, of course, um, because the more people who listen, the more cool stuff we can do in the future. So that is my call to action. Thanks so much for listening. But now we're going to get on with the show. Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay, well, I think we're going to carry on with our investigation of of the idea of genius, how that's defined, uh, to what extent that's a kind of cultural decision, to what extent that uh, label can be changed over time. There are some people, you know, of course, who who have been considered very, very important, who just then disappear. Uh, and there are people who were not, who are very obscure in their own lifetimes, who have become very, very important. Um, but I thought maybe we'd just throw out sort of, a, if I have to stop and think even for a second about someone as an artist, and I think that one of the things we want to do with this segment is to look at artists, um, because we we have a focus on uh, our mathematicians, our scientists. We've, you know, Einstein probably is kind of a, you know, the icon of of genius in the modern age. And that's all great. And it is important. And we're not saying we're not very grateful for our STEM uh, giants. Um, But we did make mention of the C.P. Snow uh, lecture and book, The Two Cultures, being the math science people on the one side and the arts and humanities on the other. So I think that what we're doing is a little bit of a promo for the arts and humanities uh, giants of all time. And I'd like to throw out one of 
not just my favorites. I, I he's huge business to this day, which is pretty good when you were painting in you know the year fifteen hundred. And I'm thinking of Hieronymus Bosch. That's uh, a great, one. great one. Yep. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Only twenty paintings and eight drawings. That's what we're defining as the life. And that's obviously, you know, there was much more that we don't have access to. But that's what, we, what we're talking about when we talk about Hieronymus Bosch. But I think anyone who's heard that name has some amazing visions in their heads. And I just want to share one. This is in translation. Of course, this is from... Uh, a Spanish artist of his day. And we all know how snarky and jealous contemporaries can be, right? Oh, yeah. You, you oftentimes, you know, you get Ben Johnson praising Shakespeare. That That's kind of unusual. More mm-hmm. often than not, it's, mm-hmm. it's different ways. But listen, this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece. All the ingenuity of heaven and hell yields to the gorgeous and terrifying wonder of his dreams. Wow. Wow. You know? Wow. That's awesome. I love that. That is just like, you know, and I think that beautifully from a contemporary point of view uh, captures the, just the sheer nightmarish beauty and I don't. I can't think of anyone with a more um, in the Western tradition with an ability to cross over between that sense of heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think when you read sort of Dante, everybody's into the inferno, and then that's kind of it. After that, I mean, Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost. It's so much more interesting with Satan plotting with his monsters at the start. You know, right. Um, that's the that's the moment when you get on to the other stuff. It's like, oh, please, let's go back to the monsters yes. plotting. You yes, know? yes. Well, and it's I, that's what Bosch gets to is these fantastic demons. You know, right, right. Well, and I think I think that that speaks to people who have an artistically inclined mind tend to gravitate towards those kind of things. Have you ever been to a sort of modern? Uh, church, let's say a Protestant church, and they start, you know, playing Christian rock music, and it's just <laughs> you just you want to find the nearest window. You just you know nail nail yourself to the cross up there just to make yourself feel something. Um, but you know, uh, I think that artists in particular are interested in these depictions of hell and demons because there's something so compelling about the Luciferic element of rebellion and and exploration and seeking it's that kind of it's that rebellion thing i I told you this earlier but a very similar painting by uh bruegel the the fall of the rebel angels has been something that's been fascinating me i've just been looking at it on my computer screen for a time i had it as my background not to get too far off a bosch but it's got that similar feel to it doesn't it it's 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 not far. It's it's very much in keeping with this. This is the, those are two artists that have very very uh, 
uh, many things in common in terms of, of their their style of depicting particularly human faces, but their their sense of the grotesque, their sense of the the challenged, you know, and and the the demonic finding kind of a, a weirdly a weird cool, you know, mm-hmm. they're the people who gave us that whole idea, you know, right, right. And there's, you know, just a fun anecdote about Bosch as well. So in the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is probably his most famous painting, um, which depicts souls being tortured in hell in various unique and interesting ways, there is a bit of the painting in which a gentleman has been, well, I'm assuming he's a gentleman, could be a woman, I suppose, has been crushed by a harp and a lute. And there's a demon with a long tongue behind him that's pointing at his butt. And on on his butt is some music. Now, up the road, up the road from me at Oklahoma Christian University in Edmond, which is about a (laughs) 30-minute drive, someone transcribed transcribed the butt music. Um, And you can listen to it on YouTube. It's very creepy. But they gave it this great title. You ready for this? Hit it's, me. It's called The 500-Year-Old Butt Song from Hell. <laughs> wow. Wow. There you go. I mean, that is a very famous detail of it. Not And, and not just because there's a naked butt with music on it. I mean, the whole con- contextual thing is very, very weird. Um, that's fantastic. You know, you, you could probably um, just spin off an entire operatic soap opera series of of based on just little details within Bosch's work. It could be this weird demonic soap opera that never ends, you know? Oh, that's great. That's a great idea. That's the kind of soap opera that I would like to see. I'm really tired of seeing, you know, bored housewives and, you know, adulterous doctors. I want to see, you know, demons and butt music. That's the kind of soap opera that I'm looking for. Something much more Lynchian, like Twin Peaks, but in hell. Yeah, I look, I hear you. I think that, well, maybe we need to write that because I think there's a market for that because people are bored with, you know, just the endlessness of, of kind of a reality TV show frame. And we want to get back to some of these really just, you know, good Fortrian stuff too, you know, stuff that kind of... Uh, because, I mean, one of uh, the other people I think of with, you know, Bruegel certainly comes to mind with Bosch, but, but Albrecht Dürer, you know, the master mm-hmm. engraver, printer, painter. Uh, and I was thinking about, have you seen his, uh, The Monstrous Sow of Lanzer? Monstrous Sow of Lanzer. I'm looking it up right now. It's a conjoined... I mean, the, the artistry uh, of being yeah. able to, to do that kind of draftsmanship is just... It's it's frightening to how how skilled he was, yeah, and uh, yeah. he was and to, skilled. In- oh, sorry. To, to touch on the genius thing too, it's like I, f- I feel like a lot of this stuff, whether it's Bosch or Durer, it seems to arise out of nowhere. That's what's so interesting about it. Who are the who are the precursors to a Hieronymus Bosch? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, there's there is there are certainly some answers to that in terms of. The, the themes, you know, the religious themes, the, 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 the saints, St. Jerome, St. Anthony, you know, these great moments, there's certainly that sort of, of tradition. 
But there's absolutely there, there's not really a precedent for how he how he treats those themes, you know. And when he's talking about the last judgment, I mean, he really means what he says. Yeah, yeah no <laughs> it's kidding. Like, God, I mean, like these big, you know, these weird lizard creatures eating heads, and you know, people who are fish and knives everywhere. I mean, his demons are just. You have to wonder, you know, what kind of of, of drug he was on, you know. Um, right, right. And I think he was just on the, uh, certainly on the drug called Imagination and Genius, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, more than likely, yeah, there's that. I mean, you know, you never really know where this stuff comes. It's got to be something coming up in the collective unconscious. You know, I've had some some dreams before where you wake up and you think, huh, where did where did that come from? I remember a specific one that had a man with with no arms and uh, from the stumps there was just this continual flow of liquid meat coming out of his arms. I don't know where that comes from. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know if there's really a precursor for that, but it sort of it pops up in the collective unconscious and then if you're someone like Bosch, I guess you you set to work. Well, certainly one practical aspect for these artists, and remember people of that kind of intellect and that orientation of curiosity and that Fortrian skeptical but joyful investigation of the world. I mean, we think Durer died of malaria, uh, actually. Malaria he contracted uh, in the marsh swamplands of Zealand in in the Netherlands, um, going to investigate a beached whale. Um, so he was a natural, you know, deeply curious person. But the boundary between artist and natural scientist, natural philosopher scientist, was was very thin. And the boundary, I mean, and what we mean by scientist was really then an alchemist, a magician, uh, you know, someone in that. But they were very heavily into cabinet of cabinets of curiosity. Yes. Um, Wonderkammer, you know, uh, that and there was when you look at some of the the surviving versions of these, the Ashmolean Museum uh, in Oxford, uh, England, has some great examples of this. uh, You realize that there's a beautiful melange of 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 material. There's weird fossils. There might be, a you know, some sort of. Uh, skeleton of something, uh, uh, some sort of ceremonial weapon collected from somewhere. You know, it was this real beautiful mishmash of things. So the idea of hybrid creatures, remember uh, Charles Walton, you know, and the nunsuch, we talked about that. You know, he was into making his own sort of using his taxidermy skills, right? Yes, yes. Well, that that idea goes back so far. And of course, it, it really may go back to to what Jung, Jung talks about with the collective unconsciousness of, of, of our dream life having these hybrid monster, angel, demon creatures, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And bringing those things back into the real world is a very fraught process because once you start doing that, you start experiencing lots of synchronicities, lots of uh, strange happenings. Like some of them are coincidences, some of them are synchronicities. I know we've talked about that on episodes before. But what I love what you said about about the people who were sort of halfway naturalists, halfway artists, full-on geniuses, that that's the job that I'm looking for, right? Far from genius, right? right? But that's the kind of thing that 
I feel like when I was in school and I was looking for what I wanted to do with my life, it's like, do you want to be a computer programmer? No, not exactly. And even today, it's do you want to be a novelist? Not exactly. I would like to be a professionally curious individual, if that's possible. Beautifully said. <laughs> Beautifully said. And I, I would agree with that. And I think that it's interesting, you know, talking about that, that sense of being a, a messenger and a carrier of, of, of strange cargo. Um, you know, and the messenger god is Hermes, and, and that is where hermetic, you know, comes from. And before hermetic meant sort of sealed off and kind of, uh, it really meant secretive, you know, and, and, and clandestine, and something that was only shared amongst the adepts and amongst sort of the people who were, you know, part of that, uh, that family of curiosity. And I, I think that's what, you know, um, it's funny that and you, you bring are up, doing that. I, I would hope so. It's funny that you bring up Hermes on my desk. I have a little statue that I 3D printed at my old job. I worked at a place that had a 3D printer, and I found online this design for the statue of Hermanibus, which is located in the Vatican. And it's the only, it might, there's one, maybe two statues that combine the Egyptian god Anubis with the Greek god Hermes. Um, and so I, 3D printed off this little psychopomp that sits on my desk, and I, I like to think I face him to the north. I like to think that he's sort of my, my guiding light for things. You know, my little. It's more than a good luck charm. It's um, you know, I think it was who who was it? Uh, it was somebody who wrote the book. It was a book called Statues by a philosopher. It wasn't Gerard. Oh, this is gonna drive me crazy. Sorry, listeners. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll remember and put it in the show notes. Um, but in the yeah, book, statues, I... in, in this book called Statues, he calls statues, you know, shadows of ideas, right? Um, which I really like. It's kind of ideas frozen in time, or, or you know, ways. It's like the it's the future, you know, pressed down into about six inches of of green plastic that I was able to three D print. Um, but that perhaps is a topic for another day. Voodoo dolls and such, but. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Sorry for that ramble. Uh, well, I, I, I've got, yeah, lots of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> it, uh, Asking Chris Actison, do you have any thoughts on that? It's, yes. it's just like, well, yeah, I do. <laughs> but I, I think psychopomp is a great word, which, which many people may not know. It, it's actually a much cooler idea than, than the word the way it sounds because pomp sort of sounds like pompous which is not at all what it is Dave do you want to define I think some people may not know what psychopomp means I understand a psychopomp is a guide to the underworld that's, that's exactly what it is that you could not have said that better it's a guide between the worlds it is a messenger uh, spirit of, of of leading you know it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a pathfinder um between the worlds yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so you know when i'm sitting at my computer writing my surreal crime stories and i'm looking for that that thing that the genius that's floating out there in the air waiting for somebody to catch it i think you could do worse than having a nice little uh hermanibus antenna to pick that kind of thing up well so i i think that the the um the key here is this, this, 
the sense of, of, if not a completely separate world, something that is a secret world within the world that, that we call reality day to day. And so it's the artists and, and the writers that, uh, and the musicians to some extent. But I think that, that there are certain people who have really focused on that. Uh, and I've got two, two suggestions on the writer front. And I think that you've got a couple more who, who well, we could go on and on and on. But let's kick it off with um, the people who have such a distinctive perspective on things that it's just hard to imagine uh, literature without them. And they're really, they're in a category all their own. And I, I think you'd have to say that about Kafka. Um, and, and not, I maintain, not because of his subject matter. I think a lot of people think of Kafka and they think of the metamorphosis and one of the strongest opening sentences uh, in all of, all of language, world language, um, and yeah, there is that, there is that, but I, I want to read, this is, this is not dramatically different than one of the very, the most famous, uh, current translations of him, but this is my own, uh, and it is, it, it, I'm not surprised it's very similar to what some people may have heard of, but, um, I was just so impressed with his ability to, pull the carpet out from underneath you within a single sentence or a paragraph. I just, I forced myself to really get on top of, of, of some German. This is from the trial. As someone said to me, I can't remember now who it was. It is really quite remarkable that when you wake up in the morning, you nearly always find everything in exactly the same place as the evening before. I mean, I just find that astounding because in a very short space of not that many words, he creates this remarkably paranoid uncertainty about the whole nature of reality. You know, as someone said to me, I can't remember now who that was. That's a very interesting framing. It is really quite remarkable that when you wake up in the morning, you nearly God, qualifiers are so interesting, aren't they? You nearly always find everything in exactly the same place as the evening before. Of course, that just sends me thinking about, well, what happens when, it, when they're not in the same place? You know, it's this sentient, animate, inanimate world that he's able to really... Um, that's the thing that I find remarkable. It's not sort of like a giant cockroach kind of thing. It's the fact that he can do little tiny magical tricks within sentences in this very, you know, and here we have this, you know, very sort of anal, retentive, neurotic, uh, lawyer-trained insurance office guy who also lives in the Lane of the Alchemists in Prague, which would probably be the world's second most magical city after Alexandria in Egypt. 
um, somewhere between Paris and, and Alexandria is Prague, you know. And he's, he's a, a, a Jewish mystic who's into the Kabbalah, you know. So he's all these different things going on. And I, I just, I, I, I'm continually startled by, by his, just on the sentence by sentence level, you know. Well, think about how that opening line could have been done in such a more clunky way. He could have started that off by saying, I wake up some mornings and things are not where I put them the night before. That doesn't do anywhere near what you're talking about. And I think that when we're talking about genius and the ability for, for geniuses to bring people into their world, that's a, that's sort of one of our key tenets here for what classifies genius as genius when it comes to writing, and I see this all the time in my editing work, um, you want to be able to use misdirection, but also you want to be able to set these very clever traps with things like modifiers and subtlety. You want to draw the reader in because writing in particular, reading the novel, is different from music and art, I would say, and film for that matter, in that it requires the most imagination on the part of the reader. So what you're doing when you're writing, and if you're really masterful at it, like Kafka was, you can you can do this. Instead of throwing everything right into the reader's face, you instead create a sandbox that you tempt them in with something very mysterious. But once you have them, once they're in your frame, you've completely manipulated the way that the reader sees the world. And that right. I think is something that, you know, we're going to have to do more podcasts on, on gassing up uh, novels a bit, considering their, their place in the cultural hierarchy right now. But I, I contend that that is a completely unique skill and magical act that, that novels have, uh, that novels have that other forms of art don't. Well, I, I, you know, I think that's, uh, it certainly has been true. I, I'd like to think that it could still be true. Um, I think that really, you know, that would require, I think, uh, at least an episode to, to sort of look at. I, I would be all in favor of putting that on the, uh, putting that on our calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, but, you know, the, this fully formed interior world, there's also something to be said for a person who, when you read works of genius, doesn't it feel like you're talking to an old friend, you know, where you don't have to explain everything. You just kind of begin talking and you sort of skillfully bring them in. I don't know. I just, I really love this line. It's got my gears turning about craft and things of that nature, but please continue. Well, it's interesting about, you know, uh, I, I think to think about this um, this enter into you know a, a, a private sort of world. Uh, Henry Miller's got a great line, which I'm I'm including in uh, this textbook I'm I'm working on for Rutledge Press. He says the truly great writer does not want to write; he wants the world to be a place in which he can live the life of the imagination. And I think that um, 
what that makes me think of is, is actually uh, the difference if we go back to, say, a visual art point of view. You know, for, for so long, and not just even in the, not just in the Western tradition, but so long generally, uh, the, the, the aim of the visual arts was to try to master perspective and to be able to depict in two dimensions, you know, complicated three-dimensional reality. And just the mathematics of that and the hand-to-eye dexterity took a great deal of time to, to get with. But then you break through into the world of modern art and particularly the great abstract expressionists that we call, say, the New York School. And I'm thinking of like three very different painters of Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, and uh, Mark Rothko. They all have, despite the differences in their style, they all have one really important philosophical and psychological and artistic idea in common. They all worked on fairly significant scales to the point where they could physically be in the painting. Pollock pacing around very much, you know, as an example. But Rothko, they all did that in some way. The idea was that they disappear physically into the work as a total immersion idea. And that's, you know, that's possible in a physical art sense, isn't it? You could, you, you could paint, you know, as Pollock did, you know, uh, and then you, you know, you put this giant thing up on, on the wall and you step back from it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you can do that in film, but it's a lot harder to do that. You know, as, as you know, in, in, in pure writing terms, just, just on the page. And, uh, the, someone who I think does, you know, who plays with this idea uh, and I know you you think a lot of is is Borges, you know. Um, he, you know, every time you, you, I start to think, well, he's just, you know, he's too, uh, he's too intellectual. Uh, he's, you know, he he, it's too much work. Then you start to get, you instantly fall into his trap, and and the whole personal mythology of, you know, the swords or the knife fighter gauchos, the the mirrors. You got circular ruins and ropes of sand and, you know, gardens and forking paths and the library and the labyrinth and the library as labyrinth. And I'm just overwhelmed. And it, I love, you remember that uh, once, I say it, it, it's Tlon Okbar Orbis uh, Tertius, you know, one of, and it's, uh, you know, this sort of, imaginary history of an imaginary planet imagine you know it's everything is just like a world within a world within a world. but he finally gets down to a very very physical sort of uh moment things duplicate themselves on Tuan. they also tend to grow vague or sketchy and to lose detail when they begin to be forgotten the classic example is the doorway that continued to exist so long as a certain beggar frequented it, but which was lost to sight when the beggar died. Sometimes a few birds, a horse, 
have saved the ruins of an amphitheater. I just love that that movement from, you know, what is really a very high level of conceptual uh, uh, trickery, legerdemain, you know, to suddenly getting very, very physical and, 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 you know, and geographic. And that, I just happened to in this sort of, you know, as we say, everything is connected. I opened up um, one of my uh, William Burroughs books because I was moving some stuff to clean a shelf. And I found this immediately after I found that Boris line. Tangier seems to exist on several dimensions. You are always finding streets, squares, parks you never saw before. Here fact merges into dreams and dreams erupt into the real world. Unfinished buildings fall into ruin and decay. Arabs move in silently like weeds and vines. The catatonic youth moves through the marketplace bumping into people and stalls like a sleepwalker. A man barefooted in rags, his face eaten and tumescent with a horrible skin disease, begs with his eyes alone. He does not have the will left to hold out his hand. An old Arab passionately kisses the sidewalk. People stop to watch for a few minutes with bestial curiosity and then move on. <laughs> you know, it's this whole thing, you know, and I think that I guess that maybe this is what we're saying with, with genius in the sense of, of that Hermeticus and Hermes messenger, psychopomp, guardian, traveler between the worlds is that we're taken backwards and forwards between the worlds um, and backwards and forwards in our own sense of, of um, self-belief, you know, um, and I, I think that uh, you and I were talking at one point about there's a there's a one of many lines from Emerson, but you know it's to the effect that whoever believes that their inner personal truth is true for all people, that is genius, um, which may be true, but of course the problem with it is it's also a good definition of someone who's completely insane. That's correct. That is correct. And there is a thin <laughs> line between those two. So with the Burroughs quote, what I love so much about that, I want listeners to go back and listen to Chris's reading of that again and see how he 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 goes from the big picture, the entire the entirety of Tangiers, right? Down to the 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 face of a leper. Am I getting it's a leper, yes, right? Yes. Like uh -huh. all all the way down, right? You follow him down into the streets, then there's people bumping against each other. To put it in a crude way, it's almost as if a camera was hovering above the city and then goes back down. But of course, Burroughs is doing a lot more than a camera could do there. And that's one of the things that I love about a very skillful writer such as Burroughs is the ability to uh, dilate time and also space, right? To go from, you know, kind of stretching out moments into paragraphs and paragraphs. There's a great book... Um, by Jane Allison called Meander Spiral Explode. And in it, she questions the sort of dominant Campbellian narrative arc that's so popular amongst us today and suggests alternative methods for, for talking about um, 
how to construct a narrative, right? And so she obviously says that there's a meandering narrative, a, a spiral narrative, and then an explosion of a narrative. Uh, and the book is well worth reading. I won't get into all of that right now, but she brings up, uh, you know, somebody who I think is sort of a modern genius, who's uh, Nicholson Baker, right? And his book, The right. Mezzanine. And The Mezzanine runs something to the effect of 400 pages, uh, but it's all this sort of elevator ride, right? And you you go down and down and down with him to an almost, not microscopic level, but one of the passages that she uses is about uh, this character's tie. She goes into the sort of paisley pattern of his, t- or he goes into the paisley pattern of this person's tie. And then, you know, you dilate back out. And it's this ability to take these moments and sort of, you know, expand them out. And then he also, in his book, Human Smoke, which is one of my favorite books on World War II, is very fantastic. I love that title. I yeah. I love that title. It's, it's great. And it's creepy when you think about what it refers to. But, um, He's great in that book about contracting sort of the whole of World War II into this, this, these small anecdotal stories about the monsters who were behind it. You know, not just Hitler, but Churchill as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you have somebody who's who's very very skillful at these at these kind of things, they sort of they take you along and and you you feel swept up in it, right? You feel like you're in a in a dream basically. And then you blink out of it three hours later and, you know, your back is stiff from sitting in a chair for too long, you know? So that's, and that to me is, uh, it's, it's, that's magic. Well, I wonder if there, you know, I, I think absolutely uh, it's magic. And I, I wonder if a link back to uh, one of the, the first topics that we, we started with when we began the the podcast series was looking at outsider artists uh, or people who are called outsider artists. They're oftentimes vernacular artists. They're people who are who are not trained uh, but are working on a very private, magical sort of level. Uh, and in some of the the world, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, we're, it's very fortunate. We're very fortunate that so many have survived. Um, I'm wondering if one of the things that, that, that's going on uh, then with genius is this uh, faith and uh, conviction of, of a private mythology, a private world uh, that has inherently a kind of religious and magical uh, integrity to it. And I, I think, you know, Borges is, is a good sort of touchstone for this because he was so open about um, reinforcing his mythology, you know, of actually taking you behind the scenes of the magic. Um, this is a, a, just a, a brief line from one of his more famous uh, stories, Death and the Compass, which is a great story if... if um, if people aren't familiar with it, it's very, very worth uh, reading. But here's the line. I swore by the God that sees with two faces and by all the gods of fever and of mirrors to weave a labyrinth around the man who had imprisoned my brother. I have woven it and it has stood firm its materials are a dead heretic, a compass, 
an 8th century cult, a Greek word, a dagger, the rhombuses of a paint factory. I mean, you just are not going to find that kind of thing in an MFA writing class today. I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't think you will, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. I, will. I don't think you will. Either. And I think that it's entirely possible that this has a lot to do with the, you know, the kind of moving away from these, these inner worlds. I think, I think that the more we think of art as entertainment and the less we think of it as kind of a, of a journey, when you think of a movie like Inner Space and everybody's got their spacesuits on and they get into their ship and it shrinks them down and they go down into someone's body, um, that's the kind of sort of gearing up you should do, I think, to read. You should be essentially ritualized reading, I think, is a very good way of thinking about it, right? Of enter, being ready to enter into a world, give it your full attention, no matter how boring it might get at times. I mean, you know, shamanic initiations are by turns very violent and frightening, but also profoundly boring and mentally taxing, you know? And I think that reading gives us the sort of tourist's version of that if it's done well. Interesting, interesting. I like the idea of sort of gearing up for like in a submersible and going on a fantastic voyage sort of thing into some sort of larger corpus you know yeah yeah um, yeah i i um so i have a, a, a sort of something to trouble what we're talking about here i was reading uh tom bissell's book magic hours which is a collection of essays tom bissell is i think most well known for co-writing a book called the disaster artist with greg sestero about the filming of a movie called the room a 2003 film by tommy Wiseau which has achieved status as the the best worst movie of all time. So it attracts these midnight showings of people who will do things like throw spoons at the screen. And it's become something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show for, for, my, for my generation. Um, so Bissell is, has also written extensively about video games. And I find his, his writing to be a little bit verbose and sometimes hard to crack, but also very very interesting and in this first essay in magic hour he's talking about writers who we consider now part of the the american literary canon like whitman and melville and emily dickinson right and how they almost weren't discovered how they were sort of lambasted in their in their day and age so i want to focus very specifically on melville because i know you have a ton of time for melville that's correct right I do. I yep. do. I absolutely do. So Melville, in his time, was uh, not well-received, to put it mildly. Moby Dick, uh, I believe during his lifetime, only sold about 3,000 copies total um, until it was rediscovered in 1916 by in a, in a moldy, dusty used bookstore in New York by an acquisitions editor for one of the big six. I can't remember exactly. And that person read it and loved it, and then it achieved the kind of success that we that we see it has today. So I'll put this question to you, Chris. So we agree that Melville is a genius, right? 
Yes, we do. So what what was going on in his lifetime that kept people from recognizing that genius? Well, first of all, I think that that he poses a problem in that um, his genius is is incredibly inconsistent. Um, I mean, I think you can look at Shakespeare as a, as an example as a counterexample. I think in another art form, you could look at Picasso. I mean, even if you think Picasso is just you know isn't a genius at all, there is an enormous amount. He, he was tremendously prolific. He was consistent. Uh, Melville's very very inconsistent. Um, there's a very strange arc. Of, of creative and, and personal emotional growth in his life. So he doesn't give an easy sort of profile to fit into to anything. Um, his own, I mean, it, I don't know how many people, well, I know actually very few people have ever read Pierre, which is the novel that follows uh, Moby Dick. And... Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with Moby Dick. And it's very, very difficult to accept that it's the same writer. It's, it's just absolutely, it's another world entirely. It's, it's, uh, it's just, it's different from, every, from any point of view you can conceive of. Uh, so when we talk about Melville not being accepted in his lifetime, I mean, actually his first, you know, type was, was very well thought of, Umu, you know, uh, by the time he starts to get, gets to Marty, uh, M-A-R-D-I, um, things start to get a little odd. Um, and he, you know, but then he really hits a stride with Moby Dick, um, and he, which he finished when he was 31. And fortunately, Nathaniel Hawthorne was around to kind of um, keep him under control because he, w- he was clearly having a kind of, of nervous breakdown in the, in the writing of Moby Dick. Um, I think a very powerful and positive experience, a transcendental experience. Um, but you don't get, you know, a 19th century whaling captain speaking like Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible um, with a great knowledge of, of, you know, Persian mysticism out of nothing, you know? Um, and this hap you know, this was written in the Berkshires, um, sort of cold. I, I don't find them very pretty mountains. Um, my, my, uh, agent has, has a summer home there and, you know, people like James Taylor are sort of associated with it. It's very pretty. But there's something lonely and um, even in summertime there, I think. Um, so Melville clearly was, was nuts, is basically what I'm saying, when he wrote Moby Dick. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that is a beautiful example of where genius and lunacy join hands. And uh, he, he was very aware of this. And uh, in one of his uh, letters to... Um, his publisher, he talks about um, being an onion that has been peeled away layer by layer each day. And he, he describes the process of basically um, 
not working on sort of the number of pages he'd written, but just how much psychological um, jangling he could take, you know? Um, so th I, is that a beginning of an answer to your question that, that from, from one point of view, Moby Dick is so freakish, I think that it's, um, it's very difficult to... Uh, to put into any frame. And I, I think that that is fair to say relative to any of his sea novels, to um, any sea novel up through uh, Conrad, you know? I think Richard Dana, uh, Two Years Before the Mast. I think, I mean, I, I'm very interested in, in, in nautical-based uh, stories. I, I've got... Um, Patrick O'Brien is, is a big person I've yet to fully discover, um, but I've, you know, I've read most, of them, and I think that Moby Dick is is just kind of in a category all its own. Because for starters, I don't think you've ever you can find a more metaphysical and metaphorical treatment of being off the map or being at sea, so to speak, which nonetheless is so grounded in every single trade that's involved in, in running that ship. Every single detail is, is there. I mean, you know how we've talked about with, with Bruno, his, his sort of memory palace or memory cathedral, you know? For, for Melville, it's the ship, you know? And almost like in a hermetic, magical sense, if you could have a model of the Pequod in front of you, Every single thing, every every knot in the in a rope, meant something magical in in Melville's mind. He had this entire world, this labyrinth and library, in a Borgesian sense, built into the ship, and the the crew, you know, the multinational, multicultural crew, and of course, then there's the the issue of uh, the absence of of female characters, which. I think uh, is you know you have to look at with Melville. There's certainly an under under. I don't even think it's that underlying. Uh, and I've written about it. I wrote actually a, a piece called Dark Seder about uh, homosexual sadism in Melville, um, which I think there's. I mean Benito Serino is you know a great example, um, but. All of the major works, ending with, with Billy Budd, which was never published in his lifetime. Um, again, uh, you know, one of these geniuses that we were fortunate to find, uh, like Kafka, because uh, Max Brod could have easily burned those, all yep. of that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know anything. And Kafka's you know? girlfriend actually did at, right. the, at the time. So, so what I'm hearing with, um, with Moby Dick in particular... This is a very interesting and animist idea. So I heard that there's a lot of inconsistency in his work. Uh, he was possessed by this madness while he was writing Moby Dick. Moby Dick disappears only to be unearthed in 1916 after his death. It seems to me that, that Moby Dick wanted to exist. Is that a fair way of framing it? I think that it burst forth with some violence from another world. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, this is um, where we're getting into our shared 
mystical interpretations of how art works. And I think it's an interesting, I think it's interesting that our discussion on genius has kind of brought us here. We, we touched on it with the genius of the hands and a genius not being a thing that's buried inside a person's skull, but rather something that people can tune into the way that Terrence McKenna would talk about, you know, being able to tune in like a, like a, like a T or a, or Sheldrake rather would talk about being able to tune in like a, with an antenna. So it does seem to me that when we're talking about people who were consistent with their works of genius, perhaps they had a better connection. Perhaps their, you know, perhaps their quote unquote Wi-Fi connection to the quote unquote cloud uh, is for some reason more sturdy than others. I like that idea very much. I think that's very, very interesting. Um, wow. Uh, that, um, well, you know, it, it, one way to think about it with Melville, this is, I wrote this a long time and I didn't really sort of finish it, but I, I had this idea that uh, he wasn't actually the writer of, of Moby Dick, that he, he, uh, is in the in the on the farm in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and he's trying to to write, you know, a, a great sea novel. And he's visited by one of his old shipmates from the Akushnet, which he um, he deserted in Honolulu. And for a while, you know, what he he was working as a pin setter in a bowling alley of the time. Isn't that odd? Yeah, it is. Um, and my, my father actually had been a pin setter in a bowling alley once. I mean, we forget, you know, we think all these things are automated and, you know, and, and now bowling, out, bowling alleys are big out in Vegas if, if COVID weren't around. But they've kind of died out in most places. But yeah, he was, he was a, a pin setter. But my idea was that, that he, his connection with uh, the mystical source of genius was so bad that he really needed this friend from the past, this this uh, deserter, fellow deserter of his, um, and who actually wrote the you know wrote Moby Dick, um, but I think that is interesting about some connections that, uh, and I think that I mean if we're to take Melville at his word, that in a sense Moby Dick really just burned out the circuits, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it overloaded the system. Um, I, I do love this idea of the way that Jung would go into the depths, the way he would sink down into the depths and talk to these archangels and archetypal figures and visit this world that was very much there before he got there. The idea being that it's in his imagination, but he didn't imagine it, right? I like the idea of the Pequod floating in like a ghost ship into mm. Melville's brain one day. And it coming fully fitted with pregnant meaning in every knot on every rope and, you know, every sailor on board. And then it's up to the person who has been at times unluckily tasked with transcribing this thing to do so at the risk of their own sanity, right? <laughs> but, yes. the, but the idea of the Pequod being this avillian uh, interior castle that, that floated into him that didn't sort of come from some firing of the neurons in his brain is uh, getting very, very close to what I think genius might actually be, right? Being a genius is being able to handle your shit, 
you know, to not have a bad trip when when these things. That's a good way to put it. That's a good sort of, I mean, I think Terrence McKenna would be in that. Um, but just to go a little bit further with your question of, of, of the, the commercial uh, acceptance challenges that, that Melville faced, you know, I think that, that one of the great um, misconceptions about uh, literature and publishing is that, I mean, we know now that today we're thinking between 79 and 81 percent of all editors at major publishers in uh, New York and London, at least, are, are female. Um, and that the, the majority of readers of, of the literature category uh, of writing and publishing is predominantly women. Um, but we think that's kind of like a relatively new thing. And it's not true. It's not true. I mean, Melville wrote a lot and complained a lot to friends, family, uh, editors, critics, that the market was flooded with the quote-unquote sentimental novel, which was a category. And it was often sold on a subscription basis, uh, an earlier version of the, of the book club idea. Um, and in basically upper class women were the were the, the core readership and for for many sort of social uh academic and historical sort of reasons that's kind of forgotten and it's assumed well that everyone was reading these manly stories of whaling ships no it's not true at all it that would have jumped out um in the same way, I think that James Dickey's Deliverance would have jumped out with some book clubs in, in 1970 when it came out. Um, it, it, I mean, I think you can really, you know, list pretty... I mean, think of the, the, the so-called uh, super mask and macho sort of authors of, of the wilderness and, and the great outdoors. There weren't that many. Hemingway, London... Uh, you know, maybe Conrad, maybe not really. Um, there aren't that many, you know. And so when we have this whole thing of like going to harpoon a whale, and let's face it, I mean, we're not talking about any sort of ordinary whale. It's, it is named Moby Dick. That wasn't lost on a lot of people, what's, what's going on there. Uh, it certainly wasn't lost when we talk about a, a giant sort of emblem and symbol of metaphysical evil um, and psychological obsession. I mean, I, I think that, that Melville was really pushing his own luck psychologically to be able to confront that book, actually. Um, I mean, can you think of anything that is, if you accept the, the, the psychological terrain which it embraces... And of course, some people just don't. I, I've, you know, um, I'll tell you an interesting story about though how to get people involved in in that world. But if you accept it, can you think of anything, any novel that comes to mind that is more of a, of a challenge to the individual voyager, the Ishmael within us all? It's hmm. a very good question. I'm not sure that I can at the moment. 
I, I don't. I, yeah, look, I, I didn't. I, I think we should just throw that open to listeners and to each other. I mean, I haven't. Uh, I haven't asked myself that, um, or if I have it, it's been a while. Um, right. I, I think that is worth considering. Um, but uh, so, how do you get people into it? Well, I uh, I was teaching this when I was a grad student at the University of Washington, and um, I had a, a class that because um, it was part of my fellowship, you know, to to do some uh, some you know teaching, and uh, I put it on the syllabus because I thought, look, this is just too. I mean, it was something I was reading for my own uh, grad work, but I, I I just felt it was too important. Not, you know, for people not to to deal with it, and um, there were some students of color who came from a really, really super urban background. You know, and one of them who was a, she was really, really sharp, and I had a lot of, of faith in her potential. But she took one look at the cover of, of Moby Dick and just shut down entirely. And I said, look. You can't do that. You're you're a thinking person. You've got to, you know, you can't just close yourself off to this. But no, no, it just wasn't. And I thought, look, I'm not even going to lose that one student because she's just too bright to be, you know, prejudiced in this sort of silly sort of way. Um, so I happened to be down on um, on the waterfront, and I happened just to run into an old friend of mine who was up in Seattle, just there. And while we were walking, uh, I noted there was, there were a bunch of like, you know, commercial sailboats, the kind of things that, you know, people, you know, book for parties and family reunions or corporate things. And um, there was this really lovely, uh, quite a good sized sloop, about 70 sort of feet. And uh, I thought, well, we could get a few people on that. And I just made a comment, and my friend said, oh, look, I know, that's what I'm up here for. I know this guy. And uh, I said, really? I said, look, I, I, do you think there's any chance I could get my class out on this? I don't have any money. I, the university's not going to pay for it. And there's probably some insurance, you know, hassle. I mean, imagine what it would be like today now. I'd probably, you know, be sued. <laughs> but no, I, I, it all worked out. And the guy said, look, I'll give you a couple hours. We'll, we'll just go out. And I said, fantastic. And so I got all the students on board. And of course, some of them were freaked out. They'd never been on any kind of, a, they'd never been out of the water, really. Maybe except on a ferry, you know. But the idea of being in a, on a boat with sails and winches. And, you know, and so I got the student. She, I said, look. I know you don't want to read Moby Dick, but there's a winch next to you, and here's a winch handle, and we're going to do some work. We're going to do some sailing, you know. And that was the t- that was the thing, you know. That was the thing. Getting out the smell of the water out on the water, the sound of of sails, you know, the shrouds, and what you know, it was just this whole immersive thing. And suddenly there was a little bit of sense in it, you know? Right. So right. that we weren't just talking about a metaphor, you know, mm-hmm. that didn't include, you know, suddenly there was this, I mean, and this is, I think, what we were talking about, this immersive sense of world. And I guarantee if people 
anybody who would read Moby Dick out on the water under sail, they would have an experience with that book that you just can't have just sitting, you know, in your yeah, you know, reading well, chair. You're you're basically you're reading uh you're reading the God of the Seas Bible in it in his home essentially right like I like it from an animist perspective too that's good magic to bring somebody out on the water because whatever you know sort of embodied Melville when he wrote it is out there right so you're so you're immersing your students in whatever that being spirit God creature is and they're getting a little infected by it, right? Exactly, yeah. So, so, yeah, I think that's great. So I feel like we've done a pretty good job uh, over the past three episodes of talking about genius and the different types of genius. But here at the end of this episode, I'd like to sort of get our, our sort of final thoughts on this, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about where we go from here. So do you have any summary wrap-ups for, for – I know – it's a big, tall order, you know? So three hours of conversation. Chris, wrap that up in 30 seconds. Just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Um, well, somewhere in all of this, I think we, we get back to this idea of the map versus the territory, you know, uh, which Korzybski, uh he talked about, you know, the map is not the territory. That's obviously a big theme that Borges comes back to a lot. Burroughs comes back to that. All of these people that we've been talking about, I mean, Melville sails us right off the map. That's that scary thing. Not only are you up beyond the sight of land, which is, that's a real moment for people who have not had that experience. That is a real moment because things get real. They really do. You're suddenly very aware of anyone that you're with, you know, when you're outside of. And I think that so this map territory oscillation is is something that really is seems to me fundamental to uh, the artistic side of genius, the sense of. Are we trying to get an ideal viewing distance, a new perspective on that, or are we trying to disappear into the painting in, say, a Jackson Pollock sense? And I think that is what all of these people, they seem to be this vibrating tension between an absolute immersion and inhabitation of their art in in this dimensionalized, imaginative sense. They somehow projected you know this bigger thing but they're also bringing us in so it's this weird thing of being very projective but also very seductive and and alluring and i can't tell whether i've been caught in a net or did i plunge into the water into the work into the you know and i think that's kind of one of the things that that defines that artistic imaginative idea of genius as opposed to uh, some of the great uh, mathematical and scientific geniuses who have their genius could be defined as as somehow illuminating a, a hidden underlying pattern that we previously hadn't been aware of culturally. They've seen through uh, the fabric of reality to some underlying 
um, secret world in that sense. But it's all about the secret world, you know? Um, and, you know, one of the things I was thinking about with excitement um, as the the birth of, of your, your, your first son, or at least, you know, your son coming up, you're going to get this absolute daily laboratory of secret world, you know? Because that's going to be a new, you're taking on board like a new piece of technology. Because through his eyes, you know, you'll see it in a different way, you know. And I think that's really cool, this new lens that you've brought into your lives. I think so too. You know, I'm looking at a picture of his sonogram right now. I have it up here by my desk. And I'm sure there will be many pictures as the years go on. And I'm in my office, my man cave, as it were, which still has the shelves and shelves of books and, you know, my bicycle and my statues and all that fun stuff. But now it's also got bins of baby clothes. My <laughs> my mother came over this weekend and just had a field day folding baby clothes. She's She's got a real problem with that kind of thing. But, you know, and I also, I have carriers and bassinets and play places and there's a, where there used to be books at my feet, there is now a play school train toy. So <laughs> my, my world has, has, has definitely changed, but I'm very interested to kind of do something selfless, I suppose, you know, to, to see what that end of the spectrum is life is like. You know, that's an interesting Freudian slip. Um, You know, I've lived I've lived my entire life with people at my service, essentially, whether it was my parents or when I was beholden to no one, I was able to kind of move through life. Uh, You know, of course, you know, being good to my wife and my friends and things like that, but not really in service to another creature. And I think artistically, uh, it will be very interesting to to have discipline and to kind of, you know, sort of really focus on that to, to make sure that the kid gets the best life that he possibly can. And I suppose if I were to kind of think about that in, in terms of genius, you know, I'm, I'm going to be possessed by another being for a while, you know, I'm going to be seeing the world through a, a child's eyes, I guess a little bit. And I'm trying to go to it with this idea of the mystery, right? I'm going to, try not to be too authoritarian unless I have to be. And I'm going to try to sink into the mystery a little bit because when I think about genius and I think about STEM people, you know, they're very solutionary and their excursions out into the mystery are very much in the interests of finding solutions. And often those solutions manifest themselves in our physical world as different technologies and capabilities, feats of engineering, things like that. But, but good art is able to invite you into a mystery and let you sink into it and offer no real solutions to it, right? Just the kind of an invitation to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So, well, and to tie back to, you know, where we, we start, we talked about the butterfly in the mouth, which is the, you know, the, the, uh, our, our email contact for listeners going back to the very first episode of keeping the butterfly alive, you know, the idea there is a living butterfly that you're able to hold in your mouth in a, 
in a, a New Guinean sorcery sort of sense and to, to keep that, that being alive. And I think that, that great artists keep the mystery alive, that, that the, the solutionary sort of science, technology sort of uh, mindset is, is not the frame. Um, it, it, it's to, and it's not a catch and release frame either. It's somehow a catch and keep alive, you know? And I, I think that may be a good place to, uh, to leave uh, this show. Um, but it makes me think of uh, an interesting, perhaps foreshadowing uh, of, of the next topic of, I, I think that these great artists that we've been talking about have had a very strong sense of serving something bigger than their own ego, their own purpose. Um, I mean, even, you know, an egotist like, like Picasso, I think, was, was obviously serving something, some larger force in an almost obsessive, compulsive sort of way. And I wonder if, if that kind of inherent doubleness, um, which ties in with the doppelganger uh, motif, which is a very, very big uh, literary and, and uh, artistic idea, uh, Sylvia Plath, incidentally, wrote her honors thesis on the double in literature, um, and I think there's some good uh, some good people and and themes to talk about in and around that idea. Um, I don't know. See what like you think that. of that. I like that. Yeah, let's think about that over the next week or so, and we'll be back the exact same time at noon on wednesday once again please do leave those reviews on itunes thanks so much for listening and we will talk to you next time thanks everyone see ya bye